Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 1800 of the Survival Podcast. That's right, friends, 1800 times we have now gotten together and shared information about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. And it's kind of cool that 1800 occurs on a Friday, because Friday shows are always great, because they are expert council shows. And uh, today we've got some great stuff from the expert council. We have Nick Ferguson weighing in on his thoughts about quail versus rabbits for total production. And I'll tell you right now, Nick and I disagree. Of course, I've got a lot more, I think, experience with quail, and he a lot more experience with rabbits, and that may be why. But not only will you hear Nick's thoughts, which are great on what rabbits can do for you, you'll hear my thoughts on why Nick's probably not getting what he expects out of his quail. Uh, next up, John Pugliano waves in on investing in the evolving education market, specifically online education and other alternative forms of education. This is a growth market, and there is potential to make money there, but maybe we're not ready yet. We'll see what John has to say. Tim Glantz will weigh in on what do you do if you get some of those old-style jerry cans, ones with the screw-on lids, and they get some rust in them, and they're just, you know, are they safe to use? Can you rehab them? Uh, we have an answer from Tim on that. And uh, if you're looking to get into the pasture poultry market, what about packaging those chickens for sale once they're all processed? Darby Simpson will weigh in on that. And if that's not your thing, I still think this is interesting. Uh, I, I think that one of the big things we've lost in America is to be in touch with and understand where our food comes from and how much it takes to get food from the field to the fork. Um, when you're processing your own stuff, it's a little different than when you're processing it for market. And you need to think about the fact that one way or another, some type of process like Darby will describe has gone on with every piece of food you ever buy in a store. And that puts you in touch with the supply chain and, well, the potential for it not quite to always work. Next, we have uh, a question for Mike and Sue LaPrise on the application of the co-op model to homeschooling. Uh, I have, they have some interesting things to say on that. And then Steve Harris weighs in on everything you ever wanted to know about how you harvest energy from a car's alternator and a lot of misconceptions about how that actually works and what's actually going on there and Is there any such thing as free extra energy from an alternator? No, there isn't. But it's still very useful because it's going to be spinning around anyway. So Steve will tell you all about that. Then I have an email from a new listener who tried to make it but couldn't and said, I just can't do this. Um, and I have thoughts on an old episode called The Great Lie of Dichotomy, so much so that I've actually made a commercial-free version of that episode And I'll have a link in the show notes for it for you today. But I'm accused of a lot of things in this email, like being a right-wing person. This is interesting to see that from a new person. But I'm going to talk about how it's not only this guy I'm getting on here. It's our country. It's our country still wrapped up in this great lie, this great deception of the two sides. The two sides that are the same head of the same vulture. It's not an eagle. It's a vulture feeding on your carcass. We'll wrap the show up with that. And then I have... A song for you today from someone you already know, because you hear him every single episode at the beginning of the show, Greg Yost. He's got some new stuff out, but I'm going to turn the, the clock back to a song he put out 
before he ever even wrote The Revolution is You, and it's going to fit right in with our closing segment. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics. Homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it. That type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Um, I have one main segment for us today called the century. This is the century that was because we've turned a new century. I also have an ed- other news. The first chemical battery is invented by Alessandro Volta. Guess where we get the term volts from? I have President John Adams becomes the first to reside in the White House. It is a work in progress. His wife Abigail is forced to hang their laundry to dry indoors. I find that interesting. The first lady would hang her own laundry instead of having servants do it for her. Oh, how we have changed. And the smallpox vaccination comes to North America. It uses a cowpox rather than live smallpox as an inoculation. Yeah, see, the way that we were inoculating for smallpox in this country before that happened, they would take a little bit of pus out of somebody that was dying of smallpox. I mean, they didn't need it. They were going to die anyway. And stick it in your arm. So you get a mild skin-level infection of smallpox rather than a systemic-level infection if all went well. And then you would develop immunity. Hmm. Anyway, let's read the century. This is the century that was. We saw the golden age of pirates, Blackbeard and his ship, Queen Anne's revenge, the South Sea economic bubble bursts. Adam Smith publishes The Wealth of Nations. Thomas Twinig opens his tea room. Sir Isaac Newton discovers the rainbow hidden within the light. Magnetism and electricity are discovered. Holly's Comet arrives on time. Mason and Dixon measure the distance to Venus by extension to all the planets. The solar system is huge. Harrison builds an accurate navigator's chronometer. The problem of longitude is solved. Horse racing, professional boxing, cricket, and baseball are introduced. Cast iron pants, hot air balloons, and Watt's steam engine usher in the industrial age. We see the first factory in the first company town. The mob has read the riot act. Multiple snowstorms kill 90% of the deer population in New England. The coffee bean arrives in Brazil. Capability Brown improves landscaping. Turnip Townsend improves farming. Optimism rules the day, and mothers love their children. Benjamin Franklin becomes a printer. He publishes Poor Richard's Almanac and creates one of the first open-source projects, the Franklin Stove. He establishes a volunteer fire department, a lending library, and the University of Pennsylvania. 
Pat Franklin can make anyone feel like a slacker. Mad King George imposes taxation without representation. Bostonians are massacred. Tea is dumped into Boston Harbor. The Sons of Liberty and the Committees of Safety create a shadow government. Paul Revere takes his famous ride. British soldiers are sent to Concord with orders to not cause trouble. A shot is heard around the world, and Captain Parker has his revenge. The British Army chases George Washington to and fro across the countryside. Washington crosses the Delaware, but not in that tiny boat. Yorktown is under siege, and in the end, the British surrender. The American Revolution is a success, but the French Revolution is less so. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are ratified, and it goes on and on. The entire world is changing again. My take by Alex Shrug. So much that is familiar to us in the modern day first occurred in the 18th century. The times are also a source of stories that are too good to be true. There was a tendency toward idealizing famous figures of the past. These historical figures realized they were famous, or soon would be, so they tailored their writing with posterity in mind. There were no video cameras in those days, but we understand that when the camera is recording, people change. The same was true in the 1700s, except the change occurred when they wrote a letter to the editor or preserved their correspondence. It's not necessarily a lie, but take everything with a grain of salt. That is all. I mean, if you think about this 100-year segment that we covered, it's true. So much of what we know today started then. But I thought this would be a good time to take back to another time of starting, the starting of this segment, and to thank Alex Shrugged for doing this. Alex first did a episode of the year that was for us in episode 1258. 542 years chronicled at tspwiki.com by a guy that asked nothing for it. In fact, when I suggested that maybe we set up a tip jar or something like that, he pretty much said, no, you won't. Amazing guy. I'd love to hear you guys come out and just thank him for the work that he's done today on, on the comments. I mean, it's just a flat-out service that he's done. He's refused any sort of compensation whatsoever. I've suggested to him that he should compile all of this into some sort of a book at some point. This would make an amazing coffee table book to be able to page through year by year. It's, it's an amazing piece of work. And 542 years, that means we've also done 542 shows together since the first one. So I thought, as kind of a thank you to Alex today, I would read the very brief first year he did, 1258, to remind us of where it all started. And not even his take, just his blurbs about what happened. The year without a summer in 1258, worldwide temperatures will drop almost three degrees Fahrenheit in a single year, known as the year without a summer. Crops will fail, people will starve, and the disaster was caused by a massive volcanic eruption eight times the size of Krakatoa. The aftermath will draw, drag on until 1262. The Arab super-civilization is wiped out forever. The Mongols delivered the death blow to an already failing Muslim situation. Uh, civilization by killing the last Abzid Caliph, Caliphate for destroying Baghdad and destroying Baghdad, not just capturing it, not just subjugating it, destroying it. The grand Muslim super civilization that people talk about ends here. And Simon de Montfort forces a constitution on King Henry III. Simon de Montfort, sixth Earl of Leicestershire, forces King Henry III to accept the Oxford provisions, creating a governing committee with only half of the appointees coming from the king half from the barons, and two more elected by the committee itself, with Parliament overseeing the committee. The king will find a way to wiggle out of the Oxford provisions, but Salmon de Montfort will become the de facto ruler of England for a short while. 
this all in the year 1258 and 542 years chronicled by Alex Shrugged. I think that's awesome, and I thank you, Alex, for your service to our community. Before we take your first call, let's check out Bob Wells' plant of the week for us. We have the red skin peach tree today, and this tree is adaptable from zones 5 to 9. This is an offshoot of the old-time Alberta peach. Excellent quality, all-purpose yellow freestone peach. It's frost-hardy and very sweet. It does not require a pollinator and ripens in mid-July. This is Bob Wells' personal favorite when it comes to peaches. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit, cheese, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant and more at bobwellsnursery.com. And remember, if you're going to buy plants from Bob Wells Nursery, and you should because he's a great supplier of a lot of great stuff, you can get 10% off if you're an MSB member. Don't forget to get your discount on that. With that, let's take a uh, gander at our first question for a council member today. This question is for Nick Ferguson, and uh, it's from Jake. And Jake is basically at a point of decision. He is trying to decide whether to start off with quail or start off with rabbits. He's in a small suburban environment, which is different than what both Nick and I have. It's, it's such a different environment. But he doesn't really want to try to do quail and rabbits at the same time. He wants to do quail or rabbits, and he's looking for some guidance. Since Nick has a ton of experience with rabbits he's, and, and has been uh, you know, working with quail for about six months now, he's asking Nick where to start. What would Nick do? So, Nick, what would Nick Ferguson do? <laughs> All right, Jake, what would Nick do? All right, we got quail versus rabbits. Um, all right, so I've had quail for a few months now, but gosh, six months now. Uh, they give me eggs all right. Granted, I don't have them set up as well as I could. Um, but honestly, from my experience so far, keeping quail and rabbits, quail are a lot bigger of a pain and give me lower yields than my rabbits. Now, here's why I say lower yields. I already have chickens, so I have all the poultry manure that I could want, whereas the rabbit's manure is far, far and above more valuable to me than the little bit of quail eggs that I get, partly because the quail eggs are just a, a pain to crack and deal with. I hate, I hate messing with them. My wife doesn't care that much, but I don't like messing with the quail eggs because they just kind of, I just kind of crush them with my fingers and, and it bothers me. So, and, and in my experience so far, they've been kind of sporadic layers. Now I, again, I don't know if that's just because of the way I have them set up. Or if I'm not doing something right, this is the first time I've ever dealt with quail. But I would much rather have the manure and the meat yield from my rabbits. They're just more valuable to me in what they give me back. I can use the rabbits if I don't need the meat as dog food. And it's quick and easy, cervical dislocation, and I hand the rabbit to the dog. That's it. I'm done. The dog gets... Two days worth of a meal, worth of meals, and I don't have to do anything else. Uh, so that's really nice. And I love being able to just scrape up 
that rabbit manure from underneath the cages and dump it in a bucket or a wheelbarrow and take it out to the garden and just toss it wherever I want it and not have to worry about anything. So, man, I really like that about the rabbit. So what would Nick do if I had to pick one and and we're talking about getting the most bang for your buck? I think I would probably pick rabbits. And the reason why is because, especially if I'm in suburbia, if I have a yard, get yourself, it would probably pay for itself in a year, even if you had to buy a brand new stinking lawnmower. Get a bagger on it. Do not put any pesticides on your lawn. Sprinkle some white clover seed on your lawn. Get it going. Get your all of your lawn areas just covered in white clover and bag up your lawn clippings, at least your backyard. The front yard, you could bag it all up, and you could take it to your backyard where no one's going to see it. You could spread it out on a tarp or something and dry it as rabbit hay, okay? And then put it in a wire cage someplace out of the rain so it'll stay dry and it won't mold. And then you can give your rabbits handfuls of that Long clipping hay, and then you can also give them fresh cut long clippings with your lawnmower every day or every other day, and you can cut your feed costs down to very low. If you incorporate some fodder type things like comfrey and mulberry in there as well, you can go completely pellet free. I'd make sure they have a good mineral supplement, but you could do completely pellet free and your rabbits would be free. I don't see you doing that with quail. And then on top of that, you have the meat yield and you have the the awesome manure yield. You can take that manure and put it directly on your lawn if you have no other use for it. So that's what I do. I do rabbits. I'm a little bit more fond of rabbits than quail. Uh, Jack will probably have some more information and a different perspective on it because he's got a different quail setup than I do. So... I could be completely wrong on this, so I'd probably do a little bit more research on it and just look at the differences in, and I'd, I'd look at your costs. What is it going to cost to get quail set up versus what is it going to cost to get rabbit set up? And, and what's it going to cost for a year of maintenance, maintaining that population? And I compare and contrast that with the, uh, the daily maintenance what that's going to cost you in time, and just kind of weigh the pros and cons. But anyways, I hope that answers your question. I do rabbits. Um, I think that's a great question, and I'm really glad you're you're picking one of those animals to start with. They're a lot easier to, to get into than other things, and good on you for, for doing something to work towards liberty and freedom in your life, man. That's really cool. For everyone else who's listening, if you have a question or comment about this or if you want to learn more about me and what I do, you can go to homegrownliberty.com. I've got a podcast that comes out every Friday and recently, maybe the same day that this answer goes out, I will have a whole episode on nothing but fodder crops for your animals, five different plants that I really recommend that you take a look at, that I'm going to be working with, and that I have been working with. 
So check that out every Friday. We've got a new episode coming out all about homesteading and farm life. And if you want to email me, you can do so, nick at homegrownliberty.com. Thanks so much for the questions. I love answering your questions on this expert council. Do good things. I do have a different take, but maybe not for the reason Nick would expect. So I have this large aviary that I've built for the quail, and I'll tell you the truth. Um, we've made some transitions from one breed to the next, which I think also might be part of Nick's issues, um, and I'll, I'll get to why in a second. But I'm not completely in love with the way that it's working out. Now, the fact that it's raining like every freaking day and everything's a mud hole uh, is probably part of the reason, and the fact that I haven't got up all of my shade cloth that would actually mitigate some of the rain, even though it's porous, is, is probably another part of the reason, and the fact that I have my population way too high for right now because I, I have basically a hundred birds uh, because I got straight run and I need to cull males, and then the fact that I probably could have culled males as much as two weeks ago, but because I keep having uh, social obligations on the weekend to do things, I haven't had time to cull out my males and select my females and get the population down. So I'm still hoping my quail aviary works out to be the beautiful thing that I had planned for it to be, but I'm open to the possibility now that I may go to a more traditional quail system with um, basically quail tractors and quail rack systems and figure out something else to do with the aviary because it does a really good job for a lot of things, but it may not be the best way to do quail. We'll see. However, I'm assuming that if you're going to be in a backyard like the Jake that asked the question, that you're not going to do that anyway. Or you're going to do a small aviary system with, you know, a dozen birds in it or something like that. So here's my thoughts on, first of all, Nick's issues. Number one, I think Nick's issue is Nick never set up lighting for his quail. And if you want your quail to lay well and consistently, they need 14 hours of light. We're now getting 14 hours of light, but we're just into the point where we're consistently getting 14 hours of light. On top of it, Nick's probably got them, I would guess, somewhere where it's really shady and all, which is good for their, their, their temperature requirements, but it gets dark there earlier. So he still may not get a full 14 hours of true light for the birds. This is going to cause sporadic laying. And with it being, you know, it's like Louisiana's like Texas right now. Oh, is it going to rain today? Again, of course it is, right? So we've had like these weeks where it feels like it's night. It feels like it's evening, right? All day long. And I think that without artificial lighting's probably hurt as well. Here's the other thing. I would reckon that Nick probably has a whole bunch more males than he should have, and he probably hasn't called them out. And it's because he would have to take time from his busy life, just like I have a busy life, and sit there and watch these freaking white quail until one goes, bah, bah, bah! and once it does, grab the sucker and either call him right away or band him some way or put him in another cage so you've identified this is a male. So you're feeding probably 50% males right now. So I think if we were to correct the, 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 the sex ratio imbalance and the lighting, Nick would get eggs out the butt, quite literally. Another thing is, it's very important, most of the time, when you're feeding quail, you, you feed them a higher protein feed, and I just bet my good buddy Nick Ferguson's like, they all get the same feed, I don't have time for that. So he's probably feeding his quail a feed somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 22% protein. 
this is going to create erratic laying as well because you need to be pushing quail into the 24 to 26% protein range in order to get good egg production out of them. Next, Nick, you need to go to Amazon, I'm sorry, tspaz.com, and you need to buy a little tool for a few dollars that looks like a pair of scissors with a point on it and stop crushing quail eggs. It's a quail eggshell cutter. I'll put a link to where you can get one in the show notes today for Nick and for anybody else with quail. You, If you crush quail eggs with your fingers, you're going to hate them. About the only way you can use quail eggs without a good quail egg cutter or being really skilled with a really sharp knife is to make hard-boiled eggs and peel them, and I'm not into peeling quail eggs. So I think quail are uh, the, like the premier animal for the suburban backyard. Not necessarily for me. Not necessarily for Nick, but for the suburban backyard, because you can get a yield of meat and eggs and manure. And if you're running them in a rack system or a tractored system with artificial lighting, some you know you can use a battery and a very small light and a timer to extend that light and make sure they're getting 14 hours. They will give you eggs, one egg per bird per day, if you keep the protein right and you keep the calcium right in their feed. So one thing Nick's probably getting right is... He's probably feeding his layer ration to his quail. So there's calcium fortification there, but the, 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 the protein requirement's not there. All right? So all the things Nick said about rabbits are 100%. The quail, it's just like, like um, uh, Jake said in his email, there's a learning curve to this. And I'm only going to try to learn one at a time, and that's a great reason. So Nick's already got rabbits cold, and he's still you know, working on his learning curve with his uh, quail. I'll tell you this, another reason Nick's probably behind where he would be with his learning curve with quail is he said it. He has chickens. He has all the eggs he could want. He has all the poultry manure he could want. And these are just like another bird producing another type of egg. This has been the case with me. I really was jazzing on the quail eggs when they first started coming. And I just want to sell them because I have so many duck eggs right now I'm in the high season. But for me as a business model, this makes sense because my ducks are in decline right now. Our egg laying is just starting to come down a little bit, and in about another four weeks, we will probably hit the beginning of the molt, and our egg laying will crash, and our new girls from the quail will be just blowing and going. So there's a business model that I'm working that's separate from Nick and separate from Jake. So there's always apply the need to the situation. I would say that, Jake, you can't go wrong either way. Nick gives you great advice on rabbits. I would go back and listen to my Uh, my show's on quail, and there's several of them, and one's like three hours long, just Q&A. But if you get those things right, they'll be good. Now, this is why I would personally say, if I had, if like for some reason, I had to leave my three-acre homestead and move to a half-acre in the city somewhere, that I would start with quail uh, versus rabbits. I get meat and eggs, not just meat. I'm not going to feed my dogs my rabbits, but I will feed the dog quail and I feed the dog quail when I call sometimes and I have a bird and the dog's sitting there and he talks, Nick says cervical dislocation. You want to feed the dog a quail? You do the dove hunter head pop and you give the dog the quail. That's it. Dog takes it from there and, and goes off and, and eats it. And you know, so you can do the same thing, but for meat, for yourself, processing's fast. Nick's very fast at processing rabbits, but I think most people will mentally be easier it'd be easier for them to kill a quail than a rabbit. They don't look cute and fuzzy. A quail, you know, it, it becomes a very mechanical thing. They don't really have individual personalities. And with a small rack system, you could have a dozen girls 
two males, so it's one to six ratio. I would actually advise you to have at least three males in case you lose one. You can get your, your eggs every day. You can get your manure yield every day. And whenever you want to, you can hatch 20, 40 eggs, 50, however many you want to process. Five weeks later, by the way, put them in small tractors. Uh, they'll, they'll be in a brooder for three weeks. But if you're smart, you can design a tractor to be a brooder uh, by about two weeks of age, and they'll be fine. And so at five weeks, you're processing them at a minute a bird, and you're putting 20, 30, 40 birds into the freezer. I, I don't think rabbits can keep up with that, but I think rabbits in the total meat yield can. Like the t if you told total pounds of meat, but in the end, people usually sit down and eat a meal, two quail to a meal, fine for a person. So make your decision based on what you want to spend more time doing. You know, Learn both systems and say which one fits you better. And the other thing I would really advise you to do, Go out and buy some quail eggs and use them with a quail egg shell cutter, okay, Nick, um, and, and, and use them. Uh, go out and buy some quail and cook them. Go out and find somebody that can sell you or go buy commercially some rabbit and use it. And then decide, what is more important to me to put on my table since you're primarily doing this for feed? Because you're going to get great fertility yields from both of them. Those are my thoughts and how Nick can maybe tighten up his system. And, I mean, what I would honestly do, I'd kill those white quail and get brown ones if you're going to have quail. I, I, I have no longer have any affinity for the Texas A&M whites because just by not being able to tell male from female, that alone, I'm done. Uh, let's take the next one. This is for John Pugliano on investing in the education market. Hello, TSP listeners. Mike in Kentucky has a question about investment opportunities in online educational programs. Mike's been using his situational awareness, and he's paying attention to what's going on around him. Obviously, he's noticing the big change in education, the fact that students are coming out pretty much less educated with huge amounts of student loan debt. And he's asking, what's the best way to evaluate individual programs and online education in, you know, from an investment opportunity? And then a key question he asks about, he says, or are there other ways to invest in this particular industry? And I'm going to come back and key in on that because I think that's a really good insight, Mike. Now, Mike's specifically asking about online education, but I'm sure broadly he's speaking about any type of educational opportunity that's new and innovative and, and isn't crammed into the mold that we currently see with government education. So first off, Mike, I tell you, as I generally do with any question about investing, and that would be be careful. I agree with you. I think there are going to be some huge opportunities in non-traditional education going forward. However, it's a very rapidly changing field, and I don't know that we have enough inputs right now. I think we can kind of liken this back to the early days of the Internet. You know, back before 2000, we saw this massive increase of companies coming onto the market and initial public offerings, and everybody thinking they had a solution for the new economy that was going to take place because of the Internet. Well, you know, 90% of those companies never made it. Remember, it's the pioneers that take the arrows. So you want to be really cautious. The other reason I think that you want to be cautious is that, you know, it could be likely that a lot of these new education programs are nonprofit or somehow, you know, don't fit the normal investment type model. Khan Academy is an example of that. Uh, you can go out to, you know, find a number of other extremes. I mean, something that, that isn't necessarily secondary education, but you know, Ron Paul has his own homeschooling program. So there's a lot of solutions out there. 
And I think that we may just see this fragment into a lot of small niche opportunities that may in and of themselves may not be a good Wall Street investment. So again, we have to be careful. So what I would suggest to you, Mike, is I'm going to give you a list of companies that are currently in the education business. They're currently traded on major markets here in the United States. For the most part, they all have a a pretty well long track record. I, I will interject here and say that most of them have not fared well over the last eight years. There's been a lot of accusations about fraud and abuse. Now, I'm sure a lot of that's true. I would also say that it's probably true that the Obama administration's Justice Department did have a heavy hand on this industry. Obviously, this administration is not necessarily a friend to private companies that would want to take a bite out of government schools. So you can draw your own conclusions there. But I do want to give you this list of schools because whether or not they have the right technology or not, the fact of the matter is, is that Wall Street has invested in these companies in the past. Some of them have done quite well. I think if you run down this short list I'm going to give you, study the industry, see what these companies are doing right, see what they're doing wrong, read and understand what Wall Street likes about them. The fundamental numbers are all readily available. You can look at what the valuations are, what the trading ranges have been, and you can get an idea how Wall Street values these companies, and you can use that either to invest in this list of companies or to apply it to some of these new upstarts that you're going to see, and there will be many, many of them. So quickly, just to go down this list of publicly traded companies that are currently on American exchanges, DeVry Education Group, I'm sure you've heard of DeVry University. Their ticker symbol is DV. They've fared extremely poorly over the last 12 months or so. Another company is called American Public Education. Their symbol is APEI. They are almost an exact mirror image of of, uh, DeVry, and they've done extremely well over the past 12 months. A lot of TSP listeners are probably also familiar with American Public Education because they do tend to cater to military personnel that are trying to get a, a secondary education. Now, one other one I'd like you to take a look at that you may be familiar with, and again, they focus on uh, military soldiers and, and Marines and people that are looking for secondary education while they're on active duty, and that's Grand Canyon Education, their ticker symbol, L-O-P-E. They're pretty much flat for the year. They've had a lot of ups and downs. They are one of the universities like DeVry that, that had problems with regulatory issues. Another education company that Wall Street has really liked, particularly over the past year, And that's Career Education Corps. Their symbol is CECO. Definitely take a look at them. And then finally, I want to tell you one that Wall Street has really been enamorated with. And this is a Chinese-based company. And you can understand why Wall Street would like this is because the market would be so large. You know, in the U.S., we have 300 million people. In China, there's, uh, you know, a billion and a half. So while our online universities may be reaching out to 20 or 50,000 students, This company, New Oriental Education, its ticker symbol is EDU. They have about 11 million students in China. So Wall Street's really excited about that. So take a look at those companies. Use that as a starting point. And then, Mike, to get to the other part of your question about are there other ways to invest in this industry? And yes, I I think there are, and that might be the safer bet. So look for companies that are not necessarily providing the educational experience or the educational service, but look for the technology companies that are providing the infrastructure or the software. Also look at companies that, again, may not necessarily be focused on providing the actual education, but what about companies that are offering certification? 
I think that's going to be particularly important going forward. And it seems to me that a business model like that could be very profitable. Think of that business model in terms of something like the large accounting firms or the big rating agencies on Wall Street. Now, these companies tend to be very profitable, but they wouldn't be required to have all the expensive infrastructure and the extensive staff that would be required to actually run some type of a university or, or an educational system. So I think areas like that could be very profitable. Finally, I'll finish up and say this. Also pay attention to these free and nonprofit organizations like Khan Academy, because I do think this education model is rapidly changing, and the pendulum may swing all the way from being an overpriced system to a system that is literally free. So that could open up a lot of opportunities. And think of free in terms of what Google offers for search and Facebook offers for social media. Both of these companies, you know, two of the largest companies in America, extremely profitable companies that Wall Street loves to invest in, and yet their core product that they give away to the public is free. How do they do that? By charging advertisers. So watch for that business model as well. Mike from Kentucky, that's a great question. If you'd like to learn more about my wealth building principles or my stock market commentary, be sure and check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I love everything John had to say there, and I only have a, a few more uh, things to add to it. Number one, there's a lot of ways to make money. And I've always been the person that says when somebody says, I got $10,000 to invest. And I go, "Is that was that an extra $10,000 or is it $10,000 that that's how much you have to invest? And when people say, well, like I ha that's what I have. That's my savings that I put aside for investing. I have no other investments. You're not ready to invest yet. And there's two choices now. Now you either take that money and continue to save and build, uh, or you do something with it. Do something with it. You, you start a business. You develop some sort of a revenue generation Scheme and scheme often has connotation of being a bad word. Scheme is not a bad word. You can have a, a an evil scheme. You can have a noble scheme. A scheme is simply the fact that we've put together a plan and a way to initiate and to complete that plan that makes it a scheme. So a scheme might be that you identify that there's a really good use car market, for instance. I know this is off topic, but just to give you an idea of the way to think. And that there's a lot of used cars available right now that could be very simply made to look a lot better for a little bit of money. And you already know what the market rate of the vehicles being sold is at that higher level and you flip automobiles or at a higher level flip houses, right? These are schemes. They're not investments. They're business schemes. They're, they're revenue generation concepts. The reason I say this is there's a lot of people that wanted to make a lot of money off the internet, the dot-com boom, as, as John said. And then there's people like me. We were both the miners and the people selling the picks and shovels of the gold rush. And we used the power of the internet to create businesses of our own, and those businesses have far higher returns of investments than the straight-up investment itself. The concept of investing is that you buy something and then you wait and it becomes worth more money. And it either generates a dividend or it accumulates value and then you sell it and you harvest the difference. And there's a lot of more complex ways we can get to trading with options and calls and puts and stuff like that, but we're not going to go there, okay? But that's the basics. That's what the average person thinks when they say, I want to invest in a company. I want to buy a stock, hold it, do nothing, and, and gain from it. And 
the concept is valid to a degree, but you're only going to profit so much. And if you're in the middle of a boom, then you know 80% of the picks are going to be dogs. They're going to be losers. And when you buy stock in Google or Yahoo or Apple, you get no real say. Technically, you're a shareholder. You can go to shareholder meetings and vote, and no one gives a shit because the company always retains enough people with enough votes to always do what the company wants, and they only ever come to the, the general investors uh, for votes when they decide to do something like sell the entire company, and not always even then. Okay, Sometimes it's even done hostily where nobody even gets to vote on it. But... You get what I'm saying, that you don't really get to tell Apple, hey, you know what, if you added these features to your phones, you'd sell more phones. I'm, a, I'm an owner in the company now. Why don't you listen to me? Because we don't care. But if you're developing an app for the iPhone, all right, you got that? If you're developing an app for the iPhone, you can do whatever the hell you want to that app. And once Apple approves that app, unless you go really off the reservation, you can modify it to do things they may have never approved in the first place, and they won't worry about it. Okay. Do you see where I'm going with this education thing? I think the money to be made in the education market is developing tools for the education market, developing applications for the education market, enabling the people that want a piece of that market, and developing your own educational platforms. I think that's where, that's where the opportunity really lies. Because I could see somebody putting together a show that's the history show that's not like hardcore history or Prof. CJ's show, right, that would really be geared toward children. This day in history, every day, 15-minute segment. How many homeschool families do you think would support that show? And do you want a revenue stream that's $30,000 a year out of your own business, even if it's a small secondary revenue stream like that, Or do you want the potential to maybe make a profit on a stock that you bought that you're holding to see if it happens? Especially in this type of thing. And in all of these things, see, this is where John was hitting on, the companies making the most profit today have the least amount of physical infrastructure. Largest taxi company in the world is Uber. They don't own any taxis. Largest um, vacation rental company in the world is Airbnb. They don't own any properties. Do you, you understand? That's the way forward. We are enabling, especially anything that can be delivered without physical product will be de delivered without physical product. These education companies would be insane also to go public, most of them, even if they were making lots of money, because of the cost. Unless they got up to the size of like a Facebook or something like that. Um, it's, it's millions of dollars to go public. And after you do it, there's an additional burden on the company of a minimum of about a quarter million dollars in additional filing fees just to stay public. And that's if you're a little bitty piece of crap on like the over-the-counter big board, not NASDAQ or you know Dow or what have you. So I would take the picks and shovels approach. You either want to sell picks and shovels to the miners, in this case tools and implements to the companies and the people, or you want to be the provider and set up a business model. But that's, I am a serial entrepreneur, and I know the opportunity that's coming, and there's a lot of first-mover advantage left to be had. Next up is a question for Old Grouch on uh, spiffing up old-style jerry cans. Tim, take it away. Hey, Jack, and all the TSP listeners out there. Tim Glantz here from the Old Grouch's Military Surplus, and I've got an expert counsel answer for Matt from Southeast Texas about jerry cans. And he said he recently bought some used jerry cans from the early 80s at a flea market for 10 bucks each. 
which is a great deal. Uh, got old fuel in them and light service ru rust on the neck, and he wants to know, know what it would take to get them back into new condition. Um, well, first, of course, on the outside is painting any rust, uh, stripping anything. You would do the outside just like you would do anything else in metal. But before you do that, uh, your first thing you want to do is get rid of that old gas or fuel. You didn't say what kind of fuel. If it's old diesel fuel, you can probably filter any crud out and put it in with regular diesel fuel and it'll still run. If it's old gas, uh, find a good way to dispose of it. I don't like running old gas even diluted in my vehicles uh, for a number of reasons. Second thing is ins inspect the inside. Uh, metal jerry cans from the 80s had a white epoxy finish on the inside to protect them. If that finish is intact, you're in good shape. If it's not, uh, you're going to have to look and judge exactly what you're going to want to do with these. Because once that finish has started flaking, uh, it's, it's going to go. And you're going to have trouble with it from there on out. So if it's flaking, you're going to have to remove every bit of it and reline it. And this is where you're going to have to decide whether it's worth your time and money to do all that because uh, the proper epoxy to reline them is going to cost you probably 20 bucks a piece, and you're going to have probably four or five hours in each one working on them. And at that point, you can just buy new jerry cans. Uh, you can look and find the products they use for resealing motorcycle gas tanks and old car restorations. It's the same stuff you'd use in there. Don't use anything else, because uh, that's the only kind of product that's really going to be... Uh, proper for use in an environment with gasoline in it the once you've got that uh, assessed uh, if you do need to reseal it you need to first get all 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 of that old white epoxy out the way i typically do that is uh get a whole bunch go to go to your uh, local sporting goods store walmart get a whole bunch of bbs like one of the two or three of the five thousand count bb uh, packages Dump them in the jerry can and shake that thing all around. Shake it left, shake it right, up, down till you're tired. Then lay it in the back of your car on its side. Drive around, let them slosh around in there, roll it over, let them keep doing that, and eventually they will beat all those pieces out of there. Uh, flush it out, get all that out of there, and then reseal it just like the directions on the product call for. Your other option, well, your other two options here are... Uh, just do that to get rid of all, at least all the loose uh, pieces of the lining and use it as is, but pour through a filtered funnel uh, to catch any pieces of that as it comes out and any rust because without that lining, uh, it will rust, especially used with gasoline. Or uh, relegate those cans for storing something where it doesn't matter. I've got a whole bunch of those cans that the linings come out on. I decided it's not economical to repair them. So that's where my waste motor oil goes uh, before I, you know, either dispose of it or I filter it because I can run it in my Cuckfee uh, uh, pickup diluted with uh, gasoline once it's been properly filtered. So uh, that's your option if it's bad on the inside. As for the filler neck, uh, if it's got rust on the filler neck uh, and, uh, you know, it may not have a good gasket, gaskets are readily available. It's a simple round gasket or you can make your own. Just clean the rust off that filler neck. Use a brass wire brush, not steel, because you can make sparks with a steel brush, and there will be fumes, especially if there was gasoline in there. I don't care how much you clean it out. There's going to be fumes. There's going to be risk of uh, an explosion. 
seen it happen even when people would flush it with water and dumped it out. It still had enough fume to cause an explosion. Uh, brass wire brush or sandpaper to clean that rust off. Uh, put a light coat oil on it. Put a new gasket on it. And uh, tighten your th- uh, lid down and go. So uh, that's really all it takes. They're, uh, they're really easy to work with. Uh, and also be on the lookout for a real military nozzle. They're not easy to find. Uh, but if you find one, it, it's like gold because they don't make them anymore. And in fact, the EPA said it's illegal to make them anymore and sell them to the civilian market. So keep your eyes open for one to go with them. Uh, if you can't find it, the old super siphon works great with them. Uh, but once again, if you do have any issues with the lining flaking off, make sure whatever you're pouring through, you're also going through some form of filter, even if it's just a funnel that you stick a uh, coffee filter down in the bottom of because your engine and your fuel filters will thank you for it. Hope that helps, and if you got any questions, uh, feel free to look me up at oldgrouch.com on the website. My email's on there, and you can contact me. And hope everyone has a great day. Good stuff from Tim, and a lot of times those older cans, when you can find them, you can get them on the cheap because people think they can't be rehabilitated. Uh, and they, they most certainly can, uh, and you just heard in detail how to do that. Remember, Tim can answer all your questions on military surplus, also questions on ham radio, and honestly, anything to do with probably the military as well. I mean, Tim's been uh, a warrant officer in the military. I'm not sure how long. His total service time, though, is over 30 years. Now, he's been mainly a mechanic, but opinions on military gear, even that maybe are not already on the market just yet, he would probably have a very informed opinion. Next question is for Darby Simpson on if you're producing pastured poultry, you know what the most efficient means of packaging it for sale is. So Darby, take that one away. Hello there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, my question comes from John, and he wants to know what the uh, simplest and most cost-effective way to package whole chickens for sale would be. Uh, he's wanting to know if there are any tricks of the trade that I can pass along or help streamline the process. Um, John's uh, done a couple of different things here. Uh, he's used a vacuum sealer. He's also used a uh, shrink wrap, a uh, heat shrink uh, wrap bag. Um, but he hasn't been happy with, with either outcome. And uh, he's just wanting to know what it is we do here uh, in our operation. And John, going going back to when we process birds, Years and years ago, um, what what we did is we actually just sold them fresh and put them in, in inexpensive poly bags, and people picked them up and took them home. Now, once we started processing off-farm and we were taking them uh, to a, a professional butcher, um, we, we always opted to have them vacuum seal our chickens. And kind of what I learned in, in talking with them, uh, it's kind of one of those things you don't think about till you – to really get into it is that, you know, like anything else, there are varying degrees of vacuum sealers out there. And most likely if you're vacuum sealing at home, you've probably got something like I have, which is like a uh, high quality uh, residential grade food saver vacuum sealer. And while that certainly does a a pretty good job, uh, you know, for sealing up stuff that you're going to put in your own freezer that you're going to eat yourself, it definitely isn't the high quality that you would want to have if you're taking product out and selling it at a farmer's market or selling it to restaurants or through stores or something like that. It just doesn't have that nice-looking professional appeal, which, let's face it, in the end, we're competing uh, with products in a, in a grocery store. Like, that's 
That's what we need to shoot for when we're selling this product to the end user at a, at a, a high retail price. We've got to keep that in mind that our stuff needs to look just as nice and just as professional as something that someone is purchasing off of a store shelf. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss early on uh, when they, they go out and want to start retailing packages of product. So we've, we've going, going backwards here a little bit, a, a little bit in, in history in Indiana up until about two years ago, it, we could not process on farm and sell off farm. They have since changed the law, but going backwards, you know, seven, eight years, we've, we started using a professional butcher because we had to, and they have a very high grade professional vacuum sealer that uh, I, I think they told me <clears throat> one time that it costs, you know, along the lines of like $10,000. And it does a fantastic job at, at vacuum sealing chickens. Um, I, I'm sure that there are different levels of professional grade vacuum sealers out there. So I guess what I'm getting at, John, is that if you're not happy with, you know, how your, your chickens look, uh, you know, to to take out and sell with what you have right now is that you're, you're probably going to have to upgrade your equipment and that, you know, that could be a really big investment. Um, and I realize you're, you're, you know, processing on farm and, and trying to, to save money, but you may, may have to look at, you know, either making a significant investment into a better vacuum sealer, uh, or maybe, maybe testing some different heat shrink bags. There might be a, a different bag out there. I don't know. I don't personally have any experience with those. Um, but you know, maybe try a few different products or something, you know, check with some vacuum sealer, uh, companies and, you know, say, look, you know, I'm not doing thousands and thousands of birds, but I knew I do need something better than, you know, a $150 vacuum sealer that I can, I can buy at Costco or, or Walmart or off of Amazon or whatever and just see what your options are. Now, a hybrid option might be if you're, if you're doing your own processing and you've got a local processing facility that's not too terribly far away from you, what I might suggest is to see if you could rent their facility and or their vacuum sealer, if they have a vacuum sealer they're using, and just do all your birds in that facility um, it, it'll cost you a fraction of what it would cost to have them process the birds for you. And if you have access to their high-end vacuum sealer, then obviously your, your packaging is going to look a whole lot nicer. Now, I, I don't know what your options are or where you're located geographically or, you know, if there's a facility out there that's close enough to you that makes sense. It's just, you know, I'm thinking out loud here, and it, it might be an option that, that could could help you out. But uh, I know that our processor, like I said, they spent about $10,000 on the vacuum sealer, but they are processing like 1,500 birds a week starting sometime in the like the middle of May and going all the way through uh, up until Thanksgiving. So, you know, that that's, that's a piece of equipment that they have to have. They have to make that investment because of the heavy commercial use uh, that it is receiving. I'm sure there's a cheaper option out there. I don't know how much cheaper, but you, you're, you know, if you're not happy with what you have right now, it's just this is the cost of doing business, and it's one of those things we don't like. But if you want your stuff to look nice, if you want it to look professional, uh, then by all means, you know, you're just going to have to, uh, you know, make that investment so that you have a, a nicer, nicer looking product. So, anyway, John, those are really all the thoughts I have. Um, I'm sorry that I couldn't be more help with you. 
on on the heat shrink bags. But uh, may, maybe there are some things out there you can try. But really, I think your best bet's going to just be to, to pony up and uh, purchase a vacuum sealer that's going to meet your needs. Or, like I said, try and find a facility that you can rent or work with uh, so that you don't have to make that that huge capital investment all on your own. Might help you out. Might help another facility out. Might be the start of a good relationship. Hope everyone has a great weekend. If you would uh, like to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. Check out all the free blog articles out there. I've also got a, uh, a free blog uh, email newsletter you can sign up for if you would like. There are many, many articles on all things uh, pertaining to how to raise pastured meats, specifically uh, poultry, pork, and beef, and uh, selling it for profit uh, as a professional farmer. Uh, for those of you who are interested in going deeper, I do offer one-on-one consultations. You can check out the consultation form there. And also, if you support Jack, if you're a, a, a TSP MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on all of those consultation services. So be certain to check that out in the MSB section on uh, Jack's TSP website. Everyone, thanks so much for all the questions. Please keep sending them in. I love answering them. I hope that everyone has a a great weekend, and uh, take care, and good luck with all of your endeavors out there. Keep pressing on, guys. My ad would be, uh, I do an awful lot of vacuum sealing. I run a, uh, I think it's a 15 or 18. It's the biggest commercial vacuum sealer Cabela's makes, whatever one that is. It's about a $500 product, and I really recommend if you decide you want to buy one, that you keep an eye on Cabela's for their sales. This thing goes on sale several times a year. We got ours, I think, for 180 off a sticker price by just buying it when it was on sale. Not 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 clipping a coupon, I get a rebate, just waiting for it to go on sale. Okay, and it's probably the best. Um, they call it commercial grade, but it's a consumer grade vacuum sealer. It's something that you know, it's 500 bucks, and the consumer can buy it readily. It, to me, it's it's a consumer market product anyway. It's marketed. It, it, nobody that's running a professional butcher's facility is using this product. I, I wouldn't imagine. You know, somebody that's doing 50 birds a day is not using this thing. But it works really well. Here's the key that I found to being happy with vacuum sealing. In general, what ruins vacuum seals is two things. The bag not being t- uh, tough enough and the thing being vacuum sealed having one little sharp point anywhere that creates even a microscopic, tiny-ass little hole in it, and the bag just doesn't stay nice and sealed. The other thing is that no matter how good your vacuum sealer is, if liquid is pulled up to the seal, even a tiny amount that you don't really notice, when it seals, it will not seal properly, and eventually the seal will fail, and the bag will be loose around the product. Okay, The best way I've found to do this, though it costs more in packaging is to take your uh, product, put it in your vat, and it's two-step, and it probably doesn't work for commercial, but I'm, I'm giving this more for everybody else that has homestead needs here. You put your product in the bag, if it's going to be a product that's somewhat of a problem, and you run your vacuum sealer on a pulse mode until you start to see liquid coming out, and it'll be fairly tight but not as tight as you would like around the product, and you seal it and you throw it in the freezer. Okay, You then... Later, when it's frozen, pull it out, put a small pinhole below the seal, shove it in another bag, and vacuum seal it frozen. It will seal beautifully. You'll have an insulator of the bag inside, 
Uh, you'll have two layers of bag on top of it. That little pinhole will let any air that's, that was in there come out. And since the product is frozen, okay, when you do this, it will not have any liquid flow out of it. And you also can at times vacuum seal using the pulse. And a lot of product, you can that will be one level good enough. I just did uh, 40 quail a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now. Um, I did them all in vacuum seal bags. They've all held beautifully, but I did not just hit, you know, do and seal. I pulsed it, and as soon as I saw the first bit of moisture coming, I'm like, that's vacuum sealed enough for a quail in the freezer, and you hit manual seal. And, and that's worked well for me. Any items that you're going to vacuum seal that can be flash frozen or par frozen, you take a tray, like with some wax paper or some parchment, You lay them on there, you put them into the top of your deep freezer, you let them at least like 50% frozen so there's no moisture coming at them, throw them in your bag, vacuum seal them, boom, works great. I do that with vegetables, I do that because that way you can open the bag and they'll come apart from each other, they won't be in a clump. I do that even with vegetables when I'm not vacuum sealing them. I like blanch vegetables to freeze and they're just going in Ziploc bags. I lay them out on a cookie sheet, and, and that I know that doesn't work for commercial purposes, but I think there's a lot of people out there in, in you know the, the homesteader boat that are wanting to preserve their food well. They want good quality, and nothing sucks worse than you have this beautiful piece of meat, you vacuum sealed it, it looked beautiful, you stuck it in the freezer, you go to take it out, and it's all loose, and there's ice inside the bag, and that's exactly what you were trying to avoid. That's why you went through the, the trouble of vacuum sealing it. Partially freezing your product is the number one thing you can do. Um, And the drier the product, the better it'll work. So I know that doesn't help really the person asking the question, but I think that might make the question more applicable to a lot of us uh, at other levels. And I'll also say a lot of you guys that are doing birds, if you do big birds, don't be afraid to part them out and vacuum seal the parts. And if you were going to go commercial with selling poultry, I think Darby's got the best way. Pay somebody else to do it and build it into the cost. That's how he's doing it. He takes them down to a place. They do everything the way he specs it out. They do parts. They do whole birds. They do every, and they do everything. Um, and there's a little economics lesson here. I had a person on the Regenerator Agriculture Group mention that I'm selling turkeys this year, and I am. I've got 16 birds, and my plan is to keep five and sell 11. And, uh, but I'm selling them for $3 a pound, which is stupid cheap for pastured uh, turkeys. Again, if you're interested, email me with turkey in the subject line, and I'll, we'll work something out. But my hope is that the $3 pound rate works like this. You come here and get your turkey or turkeys. You take them out to Weatherford where my processor is, and you take them down there and you pay him. He processes your birds, you get them back, you weigh them, and then you pay me $3 a pound uh, dress weight. So if you take, you got two turkeys and they end up being 60 pounds, you owe me 180 bucks, And you pay me after the fact as a service fee for telling you how to get to the processor. Technically, it's three. this keeps it legal because I can't, this guy, he can process meat and resell it, but he can't process poultry and resell it, even though he stayed inspected. Typical government shit, right? But he does a great job. This would keep it legal. If you want me to take it there for you and then go pick it up or something, you know, however we work it out, then it's going to be more because i got to do the work. All right? So it's a cheap way to get a premium product, but you take responsibility for it. Now, here's how the economics work out, though, just so you understand how smart it is to do things this way. I bring in five turkeys at about $100, bucks, okay, is what cost me to bring them in. They'll eat about $400 worth of food. And when I sell the 11, if they're 30 pounds average and they may be bigger, I'll make $990. 
And so that means I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 bucks in profit. And I also have to pay $8 a piece for my birds to be processed, so call it $400. So I make $400, and I don't do a lot of work, because taking care of 16 turkeys and taking care of 5 turkeys is about the same amount of work. All you do is give them more food. That's it. And they really kind of look after themselves once they're out of the brooder. And brooding 16 or 5, same amount of work. So to me that made sense, but my real profit is if you valued pasture turkey at $5 a pound, which is a very reasonable number, and I get five of them, and I get five times 30, 150 pounds, that's $750 in profit that's not really a profit. I don't make any money off of that, but the, the people that buy the other turkeys pay for all my feed and pay for my processing. I still put $400 of cash in my pocket, which I can use to run the same thing next year. I'll have repeat customers by then because once you try it, you'll want it again. And I get $750 worth of turkey, and I get that $750 worth of turkey for the work I was going to do anyway. And I think we have to think that way as homesteaders, and there's a there's a line between being a true commercial farmer and being just a homesteader, and, and, and that line in the middle where we can do things smartly, give great deals to people, and at the same time, put some money back in our pocket and be smart about how we're developing our freedom and independence. Uh, next question is for Mike and Sue LaPrise, and it is on uh, homeschooling, as it usually always is for them, of course. But it is on, w would it make sense to apply like a co-op model to homeschool education? Mike and Sue, what say you? Michael and Sue LaPrise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel. Thanks again, Jack, for encouraging us to avoid being pikers. Today's main question about homeschooling is from Rick. What are your thoughts on expanding the family school or collaborative education model through a series of small private co-ops? The family schools that I am aware of are overseen by school districts, but it seems like an excellent model for a co-op. As a homeschool family, we're less for models or formal cooperatives or even educational models that have more to do with how groups are organized, than what the children are learning. Since a family's purpose for homeschooling will determine their course, it's important to figure out early on in your homeschool journey what that course is. Sue's purpose was to provide our kids with as much fun and adventure as she could while teaching them all the basics. I had no model, co-op, or even idea of grade levels when I started, but very quickly began to compare my kids with the government school structure and levels. I've struggled over the last 25 years between more formal co-ops and more relaxed gatherings, trying to find the right mix for three to four of our kids at a time, which is very challenging. Early on, I determined that I wanted to raise independent learners rather than adults that would always need to be directed by a teacher. We joined a co-op for the first time when our oldest was 12, mostly for the friendships, and at the time, I was totally unaware of what a co-op model was. While we have always had a lot of fun at co-ops, I'm the over-helper type, and I tend to end up doing more interaction with grown-ups than my own kids, and I end up doing lots of prep time instead of learning with our kids. We feel the goals of homeschooling are best served in creating family interests to work on together rather than simply replacing the government school model with another bureaucratic model. For example, the first year K-12, the Bill Bennett Online Homeschooling Program came out. Our then-youngest son, who was seven, used the sec their second-grade program for one semester. 
While it had good material, the time spent at seat work was crazy for a seven-year-old, and then Sue had to fill out charts each day about what our seven-year-old had done. So now our homeschool agenda is driven by interests like permaculture, a history program we love, welding, homesteading, farmer's market math, and a variety of subjects that we can explore with grown friends and their families. We have a Tuesday night gardening group of families where the adults have show and tell on what they're learning, plant and seed exchanges, teaching skills like pressure canning and making sausage together that we then take back home to teach our kids. It's this process of learning in community and sharing like adults do that we're trying to figure out for our new co-op in the fall. And I'm glad that's Sue's job. So whatever awesome co-op you're part of as a homeschooler, you should enjoy. But we'd like to encourage you to ask yourself, is there a better way to foster family unity in your activities? As we dig deeper into permaculture, all my dreams about my homeschool revolving around the calendar and seasons so I could spend time in the garden like I did when the kids were younger have flooded back, and I'm so enjoying the learning we're getting to do. And one day, our science found us toads, and we watched them as they backed into their habitats. We collected a couple of caterpillars that are now cocooning, and we found some tiny pale green grasshopper things on the mint plant that we've never seen before. We're learning lots of measuring and math when we're measuring between the seeds and the distance of the seeds and the giant earthworms in our garden. We've literally planted hundreds of seeds this month, more than 50 varieties, And we're learning about propagation and digging things up out of the compost like avocados and then planting them where we want them to be and so much more. And the best part is, while we don't have people beating down our door to join our little co-op, we do have two other families. And a third friend came by today and said, hey, what you're doing sounds great. Even in a co-op of 10 or 12 families, I've managed to put in too much structure that requires too much oversight but I'm learning to relax and enjoy the learning now. It's important to look at your family's interests and create a structure of friendship and activity around those mutual subjects. You won't do everything with all the same people. Some friends will love the symphony or the zoo or the library or gardening, but probably not all those things. So diversify your groups based on your children's interests. This really can only come about with younger children if you spend time with them, listening and learning with them. Then you can set up the field trips and cooperative learning that goes along with that. There's also a cost factor involved in the family school or other models where you're paying someone else to teach your kids two days a week. Then you spend much of your time at home on your three days off getting ready for going back to fit into the model. We would, however, like to encourage those who are thinking about homeschooling that cooperatives are a great great way to transition from private or government school into homeschooling. We just feel it's a transition, not a place to stay for your whole journey. So then, another thing in Rick's email was asking us to encourage men, dads, grandfathers, and uncles to get involved in kids' lives. When Rick volunteers at his kids' co-op, he's the only dad and gets lots of attention and questions from the kids because they're craving that male role model. While I'm less inclined to encourage busy young dads to do a lot of volunteer work because I feel like they should be busy working with their own families, I'd like to encourage the older men with skills to invite young kids in to learn their craft or trade. We've volunteered a lot over the years at church and in scouting, which we tried to join again this year, but we found that our time is short and valuable, and we'd rather be directly teaching our kids skills and spending time with them and getting together with people with common interests 
where the adults and older kids can learn together without the enormous cost of programming and badges. I didn't get a badge for building a deck around our pool, and neither did my 8- and 16-year-old sons, but we had a great time building it together, and I know what my boys learned. More importantly, I now have ideas about what their next steps are in that learning process of becoming a self-reliant man. Michael didn't come by working with his kids naturally. His dad was a workaholic, and Michael inherited that from him. I would complain to a friend, and she kept saying, What does Michael like to do? Figure out how to do that with him and the kids. I just couldn't think of anything except the juvenile, stupid male obsession with sports, which, ironically, I love to play but hate to watch. So I came home one day, and there was a map on the wall with spots for all the colleges that had made it into March Madness and a giant brackets poster with the names of all the colleges filled in. Sue had also bought a basketball goal for our driveway. We spent the next few weeks researching the cities and colleges, learning to play basketball, how brackets work, and eating food they ate at basketball games or food from the different communities where the teams were located. Sue makes sure I have time and space to build things with the kids. We play games, and I teach them, I read to them, and I think our favorite is going camping together. This is really hard because we're moving away from structure more every day and enjoying the peace and relaxation we're having in kind of a weird way while we're working really hard at being self-reliant, which is a lot of hard work. And it's hard to encourage people to go, hey, go into the structure. But if your options are government school or a government-managed homeschool, we'd encourage you to do whatever allows you to spend the most time with your own kids. It really comes down to the scale of social order, which says that as you increase the number of people in any organization, the more rules and regulations are required out of necessity. Each family has a structure, and then everything they belong to has structure, and the larger and more bureaucratic each structure is, the less personal and individual it is. So we're for freedom of individuals and families to determine their own course. While we understand that not everyone can homeschool, like a single parent or when both parents have to work, We believe that the closer you can get to individual learning, where each child can focus on their own strengths and interests, the better their education is. You may even know a homeschooler who would be willing to help, which we've done from time to time. We're first and foremost for families educating their own children, but think formal co-ops are a great transition from government school to homeschool. As a parent, learning to put the needs of your child over any structural model or system will endure them to you forever. As always, remember to check with your state regulations on homeschooling. If you have questions or comments, you can reach us at halobysue.com. We're working on designing the life we'd love to live. Great stuff, as always, from Mike and Sue. Uh, The next question we have is for Stephen Harris, and it is on uh, using energy produced by a car's alternator, and he pretty much reads the whole uh, question, so I will just leave it at that and say, hey, Steve, take it away. Use the full output while it is running to make the best use of the expenditure of fuel. I will address this in detail in a moment. I'd like to do this without shortening the life of my generator, my alternator, starting a fire, or making my generator alternator use more gas. Factors to consider. Using the ratings of the generator and load, using measured output, watching for voltage drop, life of the generator alternator, Traditional generators versus inverter generators like the Honda EU2000i, one of my favorites. Using the generator only to charge a battery backup and then running your devices off the battery. 
I bought your battery backup videos, and now my wife thinks I reached a new level of geek. <laughs> Congratulations, you have reached a new level of geek. I encourage you and everyone else to learn things, no matter if it's from my one, two, three, four sites, my free stuff I did with Jack, or listening to Jack. I mean, by listening to us, you're doing what I'm encouraging. You're learning new things. That is a wonderful life skill. So <clears throat> I'm about to tell you something. And some of you guys are going to go, no way, no way, uh-uh, that's not right. No way, dude. I want to give you a brief background on me, for, especially for the new people. I was a development engineer for Chrysler Corporation, Daimler Chrysler, from 1990 to 2000. And I did vehicle development work. And we had to solve ex incredibly complex problems involving vehicle systems and involving internal combustion engines. Required reading, something that we were into frequently and something that we got lectured on, especially by my boss, who was in the business for 30 years, was what we call the fundamentals of internal combustion operation. This is the physics. This is the Carnot theory. This is the theory of the operation behind everything in an internal combustion engine. I mean, if I was going to talk to, to you about what we call fuel islands, which is the fuel use of a generator, and we map that out versus speed and load, that is, you know, a half hour to hour long type of discussion on the fuel usage of the internal combustion engine. So what I'm about to tell you is not from the point of view of some mechanic or someone who's a car enthusiast. Uh, I'm giving you these details from someone who was in the trenches and I did it. So the statement, given that a car alternator or gas generator produces more energy than is often used, is completely, 100%, incredibly false. That statement is incorrect. I have been in dynamometer test cells with an engine on a dynamometer, not a vehicle. I'm talking an internal combustion engine sitting there on an engine stand hooked up to the dynamometer, and we're testing the engine. In this case, we were testing what the electrical load was doing to the engine because vehicles have incredible electrical loads these days. you know how much energy your seat heater for the passenger and the driver's side takes? Okay, and then all the other accessories we have in the vehicle. It's an incredible load. And in the 90s, this was just coming of age, and so we had to, you know, resize alternators, test what that was doing to the vehicle, uh, cabling and electrical loads, problems with electrical chemistry because of all the electrons that were going through the coolant. It's incredible the details we have to deal with. I sat there in a test cell looking at the load on an internal combustion engine, and one of these cases we had a windshield wiper set up sitting next to the vehicle. And they turned on the windshield wipers, which was the, it was actually moving across the glass. And as the windshield wipers went back and forth, back and forth, the load changes because it's heavier when it's going across, lighter when it's at the end. We could see the load on the on the gener on the alternate sorry, the load on the engine from the dynamometer. This is the load on the crankshaft of the engine. We could see the load go back and forth, back and forth as the windshield wiper went back and forth. So every piece of energy you're gonna pull from your alternator or pull from your generator puts a direct one-to-one -one equivalent load on to the crankshaft of the engine. 
the amount of fuel used to keep the engine spinning at the lowest RPM at idle of a generator or a vehicle is exactly the amount of fuel needed to keep that thing spinning. If you put 50 watts of load onto the alternator, you are going to see the equivalent of 50 watts of power load in horsepower going onto the crankshaft directly. 55 watts, you're going to see 5 watts more. 1,000 watts, you're going to see the equivalent of that going onto it. It is not producing extra energy just because it is sitting there and spinning. Now, here's a concept for you. In internal combustion engine fundamentals, we have something called a turndown ratio. This is, the, this is the ratio from the highest engine RPM or the highest load to the lowest load, which you would consider as an idle RPM. So if your maximum RPM of car engine is 8,000 RPM and you can idle at 500 RPM, I'm simplifying the numbers here, then 8,000 divided by 500 is a turndown ratio of 16 to 1. Actually, in reality, the turn down ratio is closer to 12 and a half to 1 because the engine idles it's between 650 and 800 RPMs. But in a generator, a simple dumb engine on a generator that is trying to run at 1800 or 3600 RPMs to match your frequency output that is needed, you are talking about a turn down ratio of 4 or 5 to 1, which means if you're going to run at 4000 RPMs, it could idle down to between 800 and 1000 RPMs. Now, this is for an engine that is spinning that creates electrical output, okay? Now, here's the difference. A Honda EU2000i or any inverter type of engine, what it's doing is it's not spinning an alt, a generator to make AC that has to be frequency matched. It is spinning a generator that's making DC power that is then going to a sophisticated inverter that is then producing your electrical output. So this means a Honda EU2000i style generator can have a turndown ratio of, for example, 10 to 1 or more. So if its maximum RPM is um, 4,000 RPMs, it can actually sit there and idle at 400 RPMs and produce just the right amount of energy needed that you need for what you're doing. It, it's got a turndown ratio of 10 to 1, because if you're only drawing 100 watts, it can go up from idle. Remember, idle is using the amount of energy fuel needed just to spin the thing. If you put 100 watts of load on it, that's going to be the equivalent of 100 watts of fuel being used divided by the efficiency of the internal combustion engine, which in a lot of cases for gasoline is 18.5% uh, efficiency. Note, diesel engines, direct injection ones like VW diesels, 44% brake thermal efficiency for the engine. That's one of the reasons diesels have such great economics associated with them. So that's why the inverter-style generators are better. So the way you get the most fuel from your generator is to use a battery bank. You're on the right concept. When you put a battery bank onto a generator, then you're now into the hybrid concept, just like a Toyota Prius is a hybrid vehicle. This is a hybrid generator because now you can have the equivalent turndown ratio of a 1,000 to 1. What's the turndown ratio of a battery? Thousands to one. You can draw a hundred amps from your battery bank 
or you could draw 0.01 amps from your battery bank. The battery doesn't care. It gives up only the exact amount of energy equated to the load from Ohm's law. So you use your your battery bank, you run some uh, LED lights in your house, you run a small TV, you charge up some AA batteries, and you do this all day, and then it's like your battery bank's getting low, you start up your generator, you get out your battery charger, you dump 40 amps at uh, 12 volts into the battery bank, and you do this for a few hours, and you charge your battery banks back up, and then you would do what we call you do run silent, run deep. You turn off the generator and you go quiet and you just run the small loads that I mentioned off of the battery bank that that is needed. And say in the morning you want to make breakfast, you want to run the microwave, you want to run the well pump, you get out the big generator, you start it up, you run all that stuff, you charge up your batteries at the same time and you run that for an hour and you do all your stuff and then you run silent run deep you start running off your battery bank this is what gives you the maximum usage of energy for your fuel and as you say it helps you reach a new level of geek Sorry to hit you with some of the details involved with this, but I wanted you to fundamentally understand my answer to this. It goes against a lot of the popular mythos that is out there on the Internet. I'm sorry, but what I'm telling you is from experience and expertise. It's not an opinion. This is from the physics involved of internal combustion engine fundamentals. I hope you grabbed what I said about diesels and run with it uh, as an example. This is Steve Harris for the Extra Panel reminding you that all of the stuff I have done with Jack, all of my free classes, the best stuff you can get on on preparedness for absolutely nothing, is free for you to listen to without even a sign-up at steven1234.com. And if you want to make a battery bank like I described, it's all for free in explicit detail at battery1234.com. Thank you very much, guys. I'll talk to you in an episode in the near future. Bye. Good stuff from Steve, as always. I'll leave it there because the man is certainly more switched on to everything he was talking about than I probably ever will be because I've probably reached the limits of what I feel I need um, to, to, uh, to know about this stuff. And when I need more, I go look at Steve's work. Anyway, um, I thought it'd be interesting today to close up with, instead of me asking, answering a question, actually read something to me, read something that came to me from a, I guess you'd call it new former listener that shows you how ingrained in the dichotomy people are and how unbelievably perception biased people are because this characterizes me in a way that just any those of you who have listened to me for a long time this is going to be a little painful and don't worry I'm not going to like tweak out on the guy or anything like that I, I have a totally different message once this is read and a few things to point out but I really want to point out how it doesn't matter if you're right or left on the dichotomy you're probably thinking the way this guy is and a lot of you that are right thinking are going to find this to be just oh my god what's wrong with this guy but I, I bet you if you really looked at a lot of my positions, you could write me a very similar email if you didn't get past those differences in opinion and looked at the broader thing and, and hopefully extract yourself from what I call the great lie of dichotomy. 
Anyway, this is from Jeffrey. Jeffrey says, well, Jack, I gave you a shot. I honestly did. I spent three days working in my wood shop. I'm self-employed, listening to your podcast, and, well, I just can't do it. I really like and appreciate what you do, really, man, but I think you're wrong about too many things. I'm in my 40s, too, and grew up a country boy hunting and fishing in Pennsylvania. I took hunter safety in public school during school hours. I'm not going to say government school. The idea that our government is in public is just silly, and you are only trying to drive a fear-based wedge between the populace and the big, bad, tyrannical, boogeyman government. No, the government has thrown your ass overboard long ago, Jeffrey. They don't care about you. It's a big club, like George Carlin said, and you're not in it. And our schools, I'm sorry, are not public schools. They are government schools. They are government schools. He goes on, our government is just that, ours. Really? Really? You believe that? Okay. Public schools gave us the day off on the first day of buck and doe season. I walked freely down the hall of my high school carrying my compound bow on my way to gym class. And can people do that now, Jeffrey? I, I don't think they can. The only tyranny is the corporate capitalist takeover of our government, yet somehow you militantly defend capitalism. Well, Jeffrey, that's because we don't have capitalism in this country. We haven't for a long time. And what you're seeing today isn't new. You just think it is because it's painted differently. What we have in this country is an economic system called fascism. In fact, it's called neo-fascism, Jeffrey. Neo-fascism. Because unlike classic fascism where the government doles out the money to the corporations, the corporations use money to control the government and then funnel things through government to control and monopolize things in the absence of fair competition from a true, a true free market. But whatever, what do I know? I was a Boy Scout and spent a lot of time in the woods, so I really relate and want to like your show. I listen to what you said on guns, and, well, again, you are just wrong. You say our culture gives guns too much power. You say our culture gives guns too much power, but that is exactly what you do by making them such a big issue. I don't even get that. They are not. Ban assault rifles. Ban semi-automatic rifles. Heck, ban all handguns. I don't care. All they are is weapons. Really? Okay. If my government comes and confiscates my guns and thinks, I, and I think that's an irrational fear, I can tell you that I'll make other weapons. You're right. You right-leaning folks fetishize guns, and I just don't get it. They're just weapons. I have other weapons in my toolbox. Now, you'll probably say that a crossbow, which can be easily made, isn't as power as an M1 Garand, and I get that. But do you really think your pea shooters and deer rifles are on pair with government drones, etc.? Just stop fetishizing guns and give them more power than they really have. Uh, Jeffrey, you're the one fetishizing guns. You're the one doing that here, not me. I have said multiple times that the concept that the American people will use guns in a revolution against our own government is just fantasy. I've also said long ago, Jeffrey, I guess you haven't been around long enough to hear it, that that the, the ballot box is a fool's errand if you think you're going to vote for change, and the rifle is a death sentence. That we are at a point where we must work parallel and outside of the current system to replace the institutions of government. But guns are not just about being able to stand up against our government. They're about being able to stand up against anyone that would do us harm and mitigating our need for government. And I'm sorry, but no, you can't just ban handguns and semi-autos and whatever and say it's all okay because, again, this is our property. This is our property. I don't care whether you think I need it or not. I'm sure there's things that I could look at that I don't think you need that you would have a problem with me having banned and taking away from you. And you don't think this is something that can happen. You think it's just crazy talk. Look at every other nation that's gone down the path of gun control and where it's eventually ended up 
is outright bans on most of the things you're talking about and saying they would never take away from us. And once government bans something, they do take it away, and they take people who have been absolute law-abiding citizens for their entire lives, and they give them a choice to continue what they're doing and become a felon overnight. And then they use the force of the state to apprehend, kidnap, and imprison those people for doing something they've done their whole life without harming anybody. What you're speaking here is delusionary talk. I'm sorry. Um, he goes on. Besides, the government is never coming to take my deer rifle, and you're paranoid, and you are a paranoid right-wing kook if you think so. So because I am for the right to keep and bear arms, because I believe that people have a right to their property, I'm a right-wing kook, I, I will point out that I've been an advocate for the legalization of cannabis for long before I did the show, which I've been doing for eight years. I would point out that ten years ago I became an ordained minister, and I publicly stated during the whole gay marriage debate that if any two people wanted to be married, I would marry you for free. Just show up. Because I thought it was wrong, absolutely wrong, to give protection under the law to one group of people versus another. Now, my, my action was only symbolic, but it was the action that I could take at the time. My personal belief is government has no business in the institution of marriage whatsoever. These don't sound like very right-wing positions, do they? They're not. They're not, because I'm neither right nor left wing on these issues. I don't believe in the great lie of dichotomy, as Jeffrey does, and many people on the right do. Okay? Um, and ultimately, you are a capitalist apologist and some kind of quasi-nationalist, but claim to be an anarchist. I don't get that at all. Jeffrey, that's because you don't know what an anarchist is. If you knew what an anarchist is, you'd know there's no way that I'm a nationalist. I'm not a quasi-nationalist. And I'm not a capitalist apologist. I make no apologies for capitalism. Capitalism need not be apologized for. Capitalism, Jeffrey, is what you do. You are self-employed and you have a wood shop. And I want you to let that sink in for the irony of one of your last statements about our community. It's just, it's sad when you, when you think about it. Um, I don't get that out. Listen, I don't support this government on any level. I'm sorry, but you do. You just defended the government as us. You just defended public schools as public schools, not government schools. So now you're contradicting yourself. And I don't support the military either. Okay? You don't support the military. Why the hell would I support the troops? Okay? This is interesting. Why would you support the troops? Because they're people just like the fellow people you walk down the street with, and while they may be being misused, there's still people that believe in what they do. I don't support the current mission of our government and what they're having our soldiers do. I support the men and women who do what they do because they believe in it, even if they will. many of them are going to be our age, Jeffrey, and look back and go, yeah, I, I really now I get, I get it. And some of them will be fervently patriotic blindly till the end. It doesn't matter. I can still appreciate the person and the person's intent. And I, having served, and I'm going to guess you never did, Jeffrey. I'm just going to guess you never did. I do understand that there's a lot of good that we try to do as soldiers and that our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen, and Marines generally do their best in very difficult circumstances. Some of the evil things that I did, Jeffrey, was build roads, for people and schools for people in a part of Honduras, you probably wouldn't have the courage to step in. I'm just saying. Okay? So to, to, to paint a brush and consider our military simply a bunch of murderers is unfair 
and it's not right. And just because I'm opposed to what is done in the name of this country with our tax dollars against my will from a government you said was ours and then said you don't support, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I have an appreciation for the intent and the the honor and the morals of individuals who are doing the best they can under the circumstances that they're in right now. And I won't take a shit on the very path that I walked to get to anarchism. We are all on a path. We are all doing the best we can. And we should judge people on their intent until they're directly doing harm to others. And even the military... We have to take some level of understanding that when you're sent into a combat zone, even if you don't want to kill anybody, once people start trying to kill you, you didn't have a choice to be there, yes or no. doesn't work that way. And to think that you say, well, they don't have to join. You know what? Army recruiters, when they get out of the military, are the most highly recruited salespeople in industry because they're so good at what they do, and they're trained to do it to 17, 18, and 19-year-old kids. So please pull your head from your, uh, your, 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 your ass, because you're making statements that are completely contradictory. But he goes on. My advice is to, you, uh, to you is to let go of your right-wing patriotic baggage and evolve intellectually. Jeffrey, I would suggest that you have a lot of left-wing uh, baggage that you're not letting go of, and you have a major conflict within yourself because at the same time you're saying you don't support government, you're telling me that government is ours, and you're telling me that government schools are good. Okay? Uh, it is a bit unnerving the way you rant like Rush Limbaugh or Alex Jones, just like the classic right-winger. Um, I think that I have probably been more critical of Alex Jones and Rush Limbaugh probably than you ever will be. I'm just saying, you're going to drive intelligent people away and develop mindless followers who are afraid to think for themselves on this track. Well, Jeffrey, my friend, I've been doing this for eight years. Uh, it will be, what's the, uh, uh, in 17 days, we'll have our eighth year anniversary. We started this show with uh, me and nobody else, and we built it to over 150,000 listeners a day. So I think I will continue to do things the way that I always have and continue to build this community based on thinking. That's why we have the think line, by the way. Oh, and the knife. This is just great. This is just great. Oh, and the knife fetish makes you guys look like silly little boys. Come on, man. It's a chunk of steel with a handle. I can make one really easy. You only drive consumer-based survivalism, and, well, that just ain't survivalism. Hold on, Jeffrey. The knife that you're talking about is made by a gentleman just like you, who's self-employed, that busts his ass, that's raising nine children, that's homeschooling them. It's more of an anarchist than you could ever be, even though he would say that he isn't, because he's existing outside of the system. And every single knife that he sells, Jeffrey, goes to an individual who's truly practicing real capitalism, competing against giant corporations who outsource jobs, and you criticize that while you run the same business model. This is the mental damage of leftism. This is, this is this mental incompetence, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. You are incompetent to think rationally because you're so wrapped up in your personal chosen side of the dichotomy. Capitalism is going away. Can you make a knife, a gun, a bow, or an atlatl, or do you depend on a network of entrepreneurs? I'm not interested, but best of luck anyway. Jeffrey. You're self-employed. You are an entrepreneur. And now you turn around and criticize the network of entrepreneurs that build the very things that people want and need and exchange value for value. But I'll let it go. 
I think your words have condemned you enough here. And I want to talk about, as I finish up today, the great lie of dichotomy. And I, I really think it's something that we need to revisit. So much so that I went back to an episode that I had, I have sent to Jeffrey, and I don't know if he's going to be willing to torture himself by listening to it. Um, episode 874. I've taken that episode, and there's a link in the show notes today where you can listen to the whole thing. Um, with no commercial stuff whatsoever, and it, it skips everything that's not the core of the show. So it might be a good one to share, and I might even slap a picture or two on it and turn it into a video for YouTube. I think that might be a, a fun project to do when I get some spare time. See, I, I work really hard as an entrepreneur, Jeffrey, and I bust my ass to serve and teach others, and I've built everything that I have based on that model of sharing and giving and helping other people like a typical maniacal psychopath capitalist quasi freaking neo-fascist that's what they all do right um and the reason a person gets so entrenched like Jeffrey that they they that they they just lock on to one side and say completely backward shit like The government's just that. It's ours. And the public schools are public schools. They're not government schools. And they did all these wonderful things for me, but I don't support our government. I mean, literally, you've, you've demonstrated person, uh, what do you call it, multiple personality disorder in that email. I don't think you really have multiple personality disorder. I think what you're seeing is the conflict inside of you. And this is why most Americans today are completely and totally miserable. Because they absolutely are held in check by this dichotomy. And they're held in check by this dichotomy politically, lifestyle-wise, and every way you can think of. Today for the show, there's a picture uh, on the blog for today's show uh, from, and it's with a qu quote from Pablo, Pablo Picasso. And it says, Never pit permit a dichotomy to rule your life. A dichotomy in which you hate what you do, so you can, you, 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 in, in which you hate what you do, so you can have pleasure in your spare time. Look for a situation in which your work will give you as much happiness as your spare time. And so that's where most Americans are today. They're in that dichotomy as well. They hate their job, but their job gives them the means to live the life that they sort of kind of want, so they're never even happy when they're free because they're always thinking about having to go back to work. It makes me think of my sister-in-law that went to Florida with my wife last year. I said... Take your sister, go for five days on your own. I'll run the farm while you're gone. And, and you know, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, they spend more than they make, honestly. And they just didn't have the money. It's like, we'll just pay. We'll just pay for her, take her, go, enjoy yourself. She had a great time. And she says to my wife, the day that they're getting ready to get to the airport and come back, she's having an anxiety attack. The woman's a school teacher, and even though she was coming back to home, she wasn't even going back to work for another month. This is how most Americans live. And you've been trained to live this way. You've been trained like animals to live this way. You've been trained that if a person disagrees with you on a key issue, that a whole bunch of other shit about that about them must be true. If if they if they believe in God, they're right wing. It's preposterous. If they believe in the right to keep and bear arms, they're right wing. If they believe in the concept of taking care of the poor, that they're left-wing. If they phrase that the wrong way, they'll be lumped in as wanting to tax everybody. Maybe they don't. And this is because of people divided is easy to control. 
A people divided is easy to control. That you've been, you've been, you've been conditioned to see so many us and thems. That you don't see the only true us and them. The us is all of us. And the them are the people, not the government itself, but the people that control the government. I bet our friend Jeffrey doesn't even know what the party dues system is. We have comments on the blog today. What we need is a constitutional convention and term limits on Congress. Term limits on Congress won't do the square root of F all. Because the party dues system will ensure that the new congressman that shows up is on the hook for a whole bunch of money and can't do diddly freaking crap until, though, if you want to know, go to definingthemachine.com and you'll find out the first job a freshman congressman gets is a $9 an hour job that he doesn't get paid for, by the way. A customer service job basically is a telemark. He's handed a great big book of shit that says, go raise money for the party. I don't want to. That's fine. You won't do anything. You won't be on any committees, you won't sponsor any bills, you won't co-sponsor any bills. You can just sit in your chair and do the square root of F all. Or you can go raise money. And they just made all these promises to people about what they're going to do and how they're going to make a difference. And instead they're going to sit around and all they're going to be able to do is vote yay or nay. They're going to have no opportunity to influence anything, so you know what they do? They cave. And then they're owned. And then all those people that said yes to you, who would have said yes to anybody... You could put a freaking squirrel in there that was trained to speak English, and they would say yes to the squirrel, because that's why they're on the list in the first place, but now you owe them. And now they own your ass. And now they own our ass. This is how our government works today. And it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And to have respect for people who are actually human beings, behaving like human beings, and doing the best they can at lower ranks of that system, whether they're small-level government officials doing their best to try to, to, to allow liberty, whether they're people serving in the military or serving in the police force, that's called being inherently human and having respect for other human beings. But we can't. We can't. We must see an enemy. There must be an enemy. Donald Trump's people are the enemy. Hillary Clinton's people are the enemy. The lazy-ass young kids that want free shit from Bernie Sanders, they're the enemy. No. They are the pawns on the board that is the chessboard of life, and they do not even know why they've moved from one square to the next. They only know that the pawn in front of them must be struck down, and most people are such cowards they are struck down verbally or with a tweet today rather than physically, which I guess is good because at least there's less physical violence. Though, if you look at all the people protesting how violent Donald Trump is, those people look pretty freaking violent. He's right-wing, he's supporting Trump. No, I'm pointing to a fact. The protesters protesting Donald Trump have done more violence than any other group in this election. And Trump is blamed for the violence that are committed against his supporters. And if you think that's supporting Donald Trump, then you have a problem. You have a synapse miswired in your brain that confuses truth with support. I said... Long ago, as this whole election, this ass clown circus started, if you put a gun to my head and made me choose between voting for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, I may just tell you to go ahead and shoot me. To point out the hypocrisy of the left is not to support the right anymore than to point out the hypocrisy of the right is to support the left. 
The beauty is there's so much to point out on both sides. If you actually wanted to be a political show, which I try not to totally be, you'd never run out of material. You don't have to be on one side of the economy to talk about politics and bash the shit out of politics because they all give us plenty to bash. But it's hard for people to see. People are blinded by this. People are confused by it. People are conditioned to believe that the other side is bad and our side is good. So much so that they'll tell you, I don't support government, but I support our schools. And they're not government schools, they're public schools. Do you realize how, how, how ridiculous that sounds? It sounds preposterous. But the person saying it won't even realize it's ridiculous because they're conditioned to believe what they believe. The Matrix is real. The Matrix is not really a science fiction movie. That was all a metaphor, an allegory. And do you remember how the whole trilogy of The Matrix ends? We've done this before and it's all just a reboot. We're just going to start it all over again. All the fighting. You thought People don't realize the defeatism in The Matrix. They think the good guys win. In the end, it's all just going to start over. And your whole belief that you were fighting on one side or the other to get somewhere was misdirection. So that your energy was expended against your fellow man rather than the people actually pulling the controls, pulling the levers, yanking the strings. So what's the solution? Because you know me. I only beat the problem for so long. The solution is what I've been saying. The solution is a network of entrepreneurs that support each other and do business with each other in a true capitalistic form. And Jeffrey, if you didn't have that, guess what? You'd be poor and have no food, or you'd be living completely off the dole, which for all I know you are. But you claim to be self-employed, so if you're self-employed and you make things in a wood shop, then you need freaking customers. So you're just like all these other people that you're taking a crap on. I don't care if your ideology is different. You're doing the same thing. This is the religion of statism. I have called climate change... A religion, and people get very offended by it. But I point out the reality, the fact, that in the climate change debate, people care more about what you say than what you do. I have an extremely small carbon footprint. My commute to work is from my bedroom to a, a, a bedroom that is in my, my house that's also an office. Okay, So I have a home office. I drive almost nowhere. I raise my own food. I teach permaculture. But since I don't believe in the mainstream lie of climate change, I am wrong. While the people that bang the drum the hardest and yell and scream and bitch about how a catastrophe it is, what they want is the government to fix it, and they live with a great big giant carbon footprint, but because they take a taxi once in a while or choose sustainably grown freaking eggs or something like that, they sit on their high horse. This is the very definition of religion. We care more about what the person says than they do. And nowhere is that more true among the American people than the religion, the ultimate religion of statism. Statism. People claim they want liberty, so people like them because they, they say the things that they want to be said, and then in their actions they oppress liberty. And then people say, I want liberty. They say it differently because they don't want it through force. And then they actually live a liberated life, and they empower liberation in others, and they're attacked because what they say is more important to the observer than what they do. This is the nature of religion. 
This is absolutely the nature of religion. Now, I'm not criticizing religion in and of itself. Your faith is your choice, and I support you in your right to practice it. But in a religion, you could have all these things a person is supposed to do, and all these things are supposed to profess to believe. And in most instances, they will be claimed to not be worthy of the faith or worthy of the religion or worthy of the salvation or whatever it is if they don't profess the things, but yet they do the things better than most that profess the faith. Where the actions are where the rubber meets the road. The actions are where we do things. I, I watch a show um, called Last Man Standing with Tim Allen. I watched it the other night. It was actually pretty good. A young man in the show named Kyle has it works for the store that Tim is a partner in, and the guy that's actually the ultimate owner is a guy named Eddie. He's an older guy, and he had recently uh, had a, a younger lady he was married to, and uh, she miscarried, and no one knew about that. And uh, every Sunday morning... Kyle and Ed walked the store together. And Kyle decided, since he was a Christian and wanted to go to church, that he shouldn't have to work on Sundays anymore. And so he's going to go to church instead and stands up for himself and says, my right to practice my faith supersedes your ability to make me work. And technically, legally, since this is a larger company that wouldn't be in any kind of harm because he didn't come there, uh, would be right. But the truth was Ed saw Kyle as a son-like figure in his life. And when Kyle finds that out, he shows up in the morning to walk the store with him. That's more important than going to church, yet they figure out if they do it early enough, he can still go attend church. But the action is more important than saying words. And that's how we should live our lives. Our actions should be toward liberty. Our words only mean so much. And voting for people who use words but their actions don't follow what they do, is the antithesis of supporting and developing freedom and liberty. I challenge everybody in this audience to break free of the lie of dichotomy. Listen to the old show, 874, over the weekend. I've, I've, I've got it for you. All you do is click. You can download it. You can play it right in the browser, whatever you want, with no commercial interruptions whatsoever. And think about how entrenched we become as a people who are addicted to concepts like gold and silver, Pepsi and Coke, black and white, male and female. All of these are divisions that are used to control you. And I have to say, Jeffrey, you are under so much control. And the worst thing is, you think you're free of it. You think you're not supporting government while you're supporting government. You couldn't be a better pawn on the chessboard. You really couldn't. The programming that we are required to receive more truth in music than many other things with that I want to remind you you can support this show because I'm an evil capitalist by joining the members support brigade by your own free will you can choose to spend $5 a month or $50 a year with nobody pointing a gun to your head and in return you'll get discounts to things you were probably going to buy as an evil consumer anyway that were designed to help you improve liberty and freedom in your own life I'm just saying, you can do that. And yes, if you're military, police, uh, or uh, uh, Peace Corps, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, or firefighters, all of you guys qualify for a discount for your evil service to the state. <laughs> 
that's how these people think, right? Okay, um, but yeah, you get a discount. Just email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service before you're not after you join, and you can do that. Also, the evil corporation that is Amazon has many things that you might buy because you want them, and you buy them of your own free will, free freedom of choice. Unlike the wonderful government services, which if you don't pay for, men with guns will come force you to pay for. And the next time you're choosing to exercise your free market rights and shop at Amazon, you can also help the work that I do by voluntarily typing in tspaz.com instead of amazon.com. That's all you'll have to do. And when you do that, I, the evil capitalist Jack, who dedicates hours and hours of every day to provide this program to you, will receive some of your support for very little to none of your effort. Uh, that would make Jeffrey happy, I guess, to present it that way. But I really do appreciate it when you guys go to tspaz.com to shop on Amazon because it's the easiest way you could ever support the work that I do. And yes, the evil network of entrepreneurs is available at tspbiz.com. Those evil entrepreneurs are out there, folks. They're practicing capitalism by establishing their own businesses and being self-employed, just like Jeffrey. But apparently he says other words, so it's okay for him to do, but not them to do. If you don't agree with that, the next time you need anything, see if you can get it from our small network of, of individual entrepreneurs first. Many of these businesses founded right out of the TSP business community at tspbiz.com. And uh, with that, I want to talk about today's ending song. Um, I decided to use this song, I swear to God, before I read Jeffrey's email. Um, my buddy Greg Yos wrote the song that you hear every day at the beginning of the show, the little piece of it called The Revolution Is You. Greg and I may need to collaborate on using the word insurrection in a new theme song, because I believe in the individual insurrection. But Greg's music is very liberty-oriented and anti-government, and this song is called Snake in the Woodpile. And there's some things you need to know about to understand this song. One is a thing called the Trans-Texas Corridor. That's what the song starts off talking about, and that's very important to us here in Texas. Basically, it was extending, expanding the highway um, at a new point instead of using the existing highway, by the way, uh, to go all the way through the state and then up into the Kansas City-Missouri hub. And then it was going to create this giant international network. But it wasn't just a highway. It was a highway and a rail system going all the way to Mexico. And the plan was for product to leave Mexico and come through the United States with no border check And its port of, port of entry would be St. Louis, Missouri. Because that wouldn't cost Americans economically or any other way, right? But here was the real evil of the Trans-Texas Corridor. And people think it went away. It didn't. They're still working on it. They're still trying to figure out how to make it happen. The thing wasn't going to be the width of a highway. It was going to be a mile wide. A mile wide through the whole state of Texas, seizing land under imminent domain the benevolence of government, especially left-wing government, and taking away ranch land and farmland that families have owned for hundreds of years. That's good stuff, huh? So that's part of this song. But what gets me most about this song is the concept of snake in the woodpile, right? Just the, it's a snake in the woodpile. Now, I'm a guy that many of you know likes snakes. In fact, I love snakes. I dedicated a lot of my life to working with reptiles and uh, fancy myself an amateur herpetologist and a pretty good one. So I like snakes, and I don't see snakes as evil, but I get the point of a snake in the woodpile. If you have a dangerous, venomous snake in the woodpile, and you don't know it's there, and you start pulling wood out of that pile, and you grab in the wrong place at the right time, you can get bit. That's how we're lured into government. We believe that they're going to take care of us. We believe that they're going to help us, and we reach for whatever we're offered, and then you get bit. 
That's what this song's all about. Think about that when you listen to it. And a caution. I'm going to give this caution, and I swear to God, anybody that complains after this caution, I will delete you, I will ban you from emailing me, I do not want to hear it because I'm telling you now. There is a word in this song that many of you, specifically if you're religious, will find offensive. It is usually abbreviated as GD. It is one time, it happens, if you do not want to hear it, if it will offend you, if it will make you run to your safe space, if it will make you angry with Jack, if it will make you not want to listen to the Survival Podcast anymore like Jeffrey doesn't, please just turn off the show now because I'm done. Okay? If you can handle it or if it doesn't really bother you, this song will make you think. And Greg wrote this song all the way back, I believe, in like 2006 or seven. He's got some new stuff out. We'll hear more from him in the future. But today, think about this. In this dichotomy, there's us and them created as a falsehood. And then there's the true snake in the woodpile. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Well, they're building them a highway from the north down to the south. Gonna shove it down your throat. You better open up your mouth. They say they never plan to take your lamb, but they try and run you out. There's a snake in the wood pile. And they're watching it go down from all the kingdoms in the land. They're taking all the gold. That the free man would command Let's just leave it up to them They've got an empire to expand They're all snakes in the wood pile There's a snake in the wood pile There's a snake in the wood pile There's a snake in the wood pile Better watch out And you think you might be voting For the next new president But the chip's already programmed And your rights already spent So if you want to trust your life To the goddamn government There's a snake in the wood pile 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 You better watch out And I hope I ain't right I hope I ain't right I hope I ain't right Don't believe it, 
for a minute. It's your money that they need. You're a snake in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. There's a snake in the wood pile. Better watch out. Hope I ain't right Gotta hope I 